Good morning and welcome to Glendale Christian Church. My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm the lead minister here at GCC. And I am so grateful to see so many faces out this morning. I'm also grateful for everybody who's tuning in online right now via our uh, YouTube channel or Facebook page. Thank you for participating with us. We have just entered into a brand new year, and I am very, very grateful for that. We ended last year on a strong note, though. We ended last year talking about anticipation, anticipating the commemoration of the Lord's first advent, and then living in anticipation of the Lord's second coming. Perhaps today the Lord will return. As we live our lives in anticipation of the Lord's return, we must be expectant and we must be ready. And I want us to live our entire lives until he comes or until we meet him through death with the expectation and anticipation that the second coming is imminent. But the other hope and prayer that I have for our congregation here at Glendale Christian Church is that this new year will bring about some new spiritual growth. I've been praying for our spiritual depth, both individually and corporately as a congregation. It is my prayer that God will deepen our discipleship and that God will help us to make disciples. For that's what Glendale Christian Church is all about. You may have seen it as you walked in and you saw our brand new TV signs as you came in the hallway there. Glendale Christian Church is all about discipleship. Or maybe you saw our giant new wall art that has our mission and our vision to make disciples Father-willed, Christ-compelled, Spirit-led. Here at Glendale, we're all about making disciples, and the reason for that is really, really obvious. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus gives the Great Commission, and he says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus made it very, very clear. We are to make disciples. That's what the church is called to do. And therefore, GCC's mission is very simple. It's only three words long. To make disciples. A good mission statement explains what is to be accomplished. And there's no need to overcomplicate things here. Discipleship is what Jesus modeled. Making disciples is what Jesus commanded, and making disciples will be the focus of Glendale Christian Church. Discipleship is the identity and lifeblood of Glendale Christian Church. Everything we do is in service of our discipleship towards God. Everything we do is in service of making more disciples for the Lord Jesus. And this entire series, our entire push as a congregation It's all about discipleship. There is a difference between discipleship and a disciple. Discipleship is a process. A disciple is a person. Discipleship is the process of becoming a disciple. And discipleship has three distinct aspects. Invitation, transformation, and reduplication. Jesus provides an excellent blueprint for discipleship in Matthew 4.19, which is the exact same verse as Mark 1.17. In this verse, Jesus says, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Three things are going on in this verse. 
Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is the process of discipleship. It's all about invitation, transformation, and reduplication. All of us were invited at one time or another to become disciples of Jesus. People are invited to be disciples of Jesus either by God's very presence or by God's own word or by God's people. And every single one of you can remember the circumstances that first introduced you to Jesus. The way you were invited. Maybe it was a great Christian inviting you to talk about God's stuff or to go to church with them on Sunday morning. Maybe you decided to see what this whole God thing was about and so you picked up the Bible and you read it and God spoke to you through the words of his living text. Or maybe the Holy Spirit had to get a hold of you directly because you were so good and elusive and so good at evading the Christians who were trying to get a hold of you. But all of you were invited. And all of us who have come and have been invited, as we grow more and more winsome, as we become better prepared to answer questions and explain the faith to people, as we become more like Christ himself, the more effective we will be at inviting others to be disciples of Jesus. Oh yes, discipleship is a process and it starts with invitation, but then it moves on to transformation. Jesus says, I will make you. Jesus transforms us. God Almighty transforms us. Again, we're transformed by his word, his presence, and even his people. And transformation always involves the same three areas. It involves your belief, your trust, and your loving obedience. It involves your belief, the things that you know to be true. The foundation of our faith really is built upon that which we know to be true. We're told to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and then we'll be able to test and approve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. And so it starts with our head, but it quickly goes to our hearts, and then is expressed through our hands. Head, heart, hands, belief, trust, loving obedience. As we trust God Almighty more and more, we can handle the circumstances all around us. God doesn't have to change everything around us for us to be okay. God can strengthen us to be okay in the midst of our circumstances. And as we believe the truth in our head, and as we trust God Almighty in our heart, then, having demonstrated faith, having placed our faith in Christ Jesus, we can do the good works that he has called us to do. We can demonstrate our belief and our trust through loving obedience. It is never the good things that we do that make us right with God. It is always the fact that we are right with God that allows us to do the good things he expects of us. That's what Christianity is all about. And this incredible transformation will be a major focus of our discipleship series. So there's invitation, there's transformation, and there's also reduplication. Reduplication, I will make you fishers of men. We're not merely being transformed, but God uses us to help transform others. Just as people are transformed by God's word and God's presence and God's people, we get to be some of God's people who help transform others into disciples. We reduplicate our own transformation by sharing our beliefs by sharing our behaviors and our lives with others. And just as each of us has had a good human example to follow, each of us must be a good human example for someone else to follow. For just as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
As we are transformed and we ask others to follow our example, we reduplicate the process of discipleship. For discipleship is a process, but a disciple is a person. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, but not just any follower of Jesus. A disciple is a follower who sticks with Jesus come what may. A follower who is all in for Jesus. A good word to describe sticking it out come what may and being all in is radical. A disciple is a radical follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. Not merely a follower, a radical follower of Jesus. Radical. That's the kind of followers of Jesus that we should be. Some people have a negative connotation uh, because of the word radical, but that's only because when certain ideologies have followers that are radicalized, those ideologies, if they're bad, become really bad. If they're dangerous, they become highly dangerous. If they're destructive, they become extremely destructive. And so sometimes we think of radical as being bad, but if a follower of Jesus is radical, then the discipleship that results is not bad or destructive. Instead, it is glorious. The, those who radically follow Jesus produce extremely excellent fruit, culture-changing lives, and eternally beneficial invitations to the world around us. Oh, it is very important for Jesus' disciples to be radical. For if other ideologies in the world have radical adherents and radical followers, then the ideology that is true, Christianity, the fact that Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity, stepped down from heaven to be born for us, to die for us, and was raised again for our justification, who gave the Holy Spirit to us, whom inspired the Bible and indwells us and propels our discipleship, if we see radicality from other ideologies, it's all the more important that we become radical in our following of Jesus. And that's what a disciple is, not merely a follower, a radical follower of Jesus. So let's get radical. Let's get radical in our discipleship. Now the word radical has a very interesting etymology. It actually comes from the late Latin radicalis, meaning having roots or going to the origin or essential. And springing from this, it came to mean extreme, which makes sense since roots are essential to a plant or a tree and those roots make it extremely difficult to move a plant or a tree from one place to another. The word radical, for me, however, has an additional meaning to this. I am a child of the 80s. I was born in 1980. I grew up in the 80s loving the big hair, loving the bright clothes, loving the heavy guitar-driven or electronically synthesized music. I love it all to this day. And as a child of the 80s, I adopted some of the slang. And one of the great slang words from the 80s actually emerged from late 70s surfer culture and skating culture, and it is the word radical. And radical in this slang term means totally awesome, super cool, or most excellent. Not just awesome or cool or excellent, totally awesome, super cool, and most excellent. That's what radical is. And I want us to be radical disciples. Radical is a term of extremity. 
a term of essentiality, and a term of excellence. I really like the word radical. So much so that I made sure that the initials of my preferred fake name alias spell out R-A-D, rad, short for radical. And this is totally done on purpose, of course. It's part of the reason that I picked out the alias that I did. I've always wanted to have a really cool false name that I could use. And I wanted to have an alias, a, a nom de plume, if you will. And this has sort of become an inside gag that I share with my eldest daughter. We each have very elaborate, very meaningful false names that we are to use if ever we get separated and need to alert or send word to the other and we couldn't use our real names. Now, this secret code is the cipher by which we would let the other know we're communicating with them even though we can't use our real names. And so my name, my false name, Get ready for this. It's totally radical. Is Raspero Apollos Delacorte. That's right. Raspero Apollos Delacorte. That's my preferred alias. Now, the names all have very important meanings. The R, Raspero. This is a unique derivation of a Shakespearean character, and it's created to evoke a sense of freedom and individualism. Just as a sparrow flies, Raspero is individualistic and free. That's good. That's good. Apollos, the A. Well, Apollos is, of course, the uh, name of the fictional Greek sun god, Apollos. Apollo. And it sounds very similar to that. And I definitely have a fascination with uh, fictional sun gods, especially the one from Kansas, uh, one of my favorites. The word Apollos also sounds like the beginning of the word apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of Christianity, and I've devoted my adult life to the study and defense of Christianity. That was my first master's degree. I love apologetics. And, of course, Apollos, most importantly, is an awesome biblical character, a very radical biblical character who was a learned, super genius Jew from Alexandria who studied in the great libraries of Alexandria Alexandria, and then he entered into logical disputation and debate with other Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and he showed them that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so, R, Raspiro, A, Apollos. So I needed to come up with a good surname, a good D name. And so I came up with Delacorte. Delacorte. Uh, Delacorte has a cool, romantic, language-esque sound to it. You can either pronounce the T at the end or not. Delacorte or Delacor. Either way, it works. It works fine. And my favorite image of Jesus Christ is as Jesus as the risen king. I love to think about Jesus as king. King Jesus is very, very important to me. And so I fancy myself as one whom the king has invited to be in his court. And so he sort of has me as, you know, one of these guys who hangs out around him and talks with him and learns from him. And this is really good. And so Delacorte means of the court. So I'm Raspero Apollos Delacorte. That's my fake name. And if ever my eldest daughter needs to send me a secret message, alert me to her capture, or just get my attention, uh, excuse me, shopper Raspero Apollos Delacorte, your daughter needs you in uh, customer service, she knows how to employ my false name. Now, her false name is really cool, too. It's Luciana Demeter Falconbridge. That's right. 
Luciana means light of the moon, which is cool because my daughter wants to reflect the sun. Demeter is very good because just as Apollos harkens back to the fictional Greek god of the sun, Demeter is the fictional Greek goddess of agriculture, and it's a cool-sounding name, and then her last name, Falconbridge, just as my first name was taken from Shakespearean influence, the bard himself has a character in one of his plays with the last name Falconbridge. So Luciana Demeter Falconbridge, undeniably cool. Raspero Apollos Delacour, obviously rad. I wonder, though, is it obvious and undeniable that those who claim to be Christians are disciples? radical, come what may, all-in followers of Jesus? Or are many that claim to be Christians just nominal, half-hearted, part-time followers of Jesus? Many claim to follow Jesus only to abandon the way of Christ when difficulty or suffering or sorrow finds them along the way. Or when following along the way of Jesus requires abandoning something we actually value more than following Jesus. Wealth, comfort, family, our particular sin predilection. This was definitely the case for the rich young ruler of Matthew chapter 10. He sought to impress Jesus and receive from him eternal life. He asked for eternal life. And he claimed to have obeyed all the Ten Commandments ever since he was a boy. But then Jesus said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus personally and directly invites this man to be his disciple. He says, come, follow me. You get to be one of the guys. You can come with me. You're not invited by somebody else. You're invited directly by me. Wow. To walk the way of Jesus with Jesus? To be a full-fledged disciple? When the miracle-working Messiah wants this already pretty successful man to follow him, oh, he's got to be doing all right. What could possibly be better? What indeed? This man went away, not following Jesus, but with his head hung low. He was sad because he had great wealth and he was not willing to part with it to follow Jesus, to be all in for him. He liked the idea of following Jesus, but he was not willing to follow Jesus come what may because what came was Christ's command to give what he had and he wasn't willing to do that. He liked the idea of eternal life, but he wasn't very keen on being actually all in for Jesus. He was not willing to be radical. And so Jesus looked at his disciples and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And at this, his disciples were amazed. But Jesus again said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And at this, his disciples were even more amazed. And they asked one another, who then can be saved? Jesus responded, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter, the one who so often voices exactly what we are thinking, spoke up and declared very broadly and boldly, we've left everything to follow you. 
Can we really say that, though? Have we left everything to follow Jesus? How about this one? Are we even willing to leave everything to follow Jesus? I pray that it is both undeniable and obvious that all of us here at Glendale Christian Church, that all of us who claim to be disciples would be all in, come what may, radical followers of Jesus. We seek to follow Jesus radically, but what is the lane, the way, the path down which Jesus walks and down which we must follow him? Well, it is not the path leading to health, wealth, or any other form of earthly comfort. Jesus does not lead us down easy street. And if you think that's the way of Jesus, you are sorely mistaken. No, Jesus trod a very different path. Jesus walked a lane known as the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. Via Dolorosa is the Latin name given to the path that Jesus walked carrying the crossbeam upon which he would be executed and die for our sins. The way of Jesus is an important concept in Scripture. A way or a path, it's just a road. It's a road. And if we are to follow Jesus radically down the road he walked, we need to understand what the way really is. Jesus knows that not everyone is willing to go along the way that he trod. Many people will choose to indulge the sinful nature or things of this world over the salvation that Jesus offered. So, let's talk about the way. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. Narrow is the way that leads to life. It is a way, and it is small, but it is available to us all. The way of Jesus is narrow, but to access the way of Jesus is to accept another aspect of the biblical concept of the way. We need to accept the way himself. In John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The path that leads to eternal life is referred to as the way. Jesus himself, the embodiment of truth and life, is referred to as the way. And even those who follow Jesus radically, his disciples, before they were known as Christians, were referred to as the way. This worldwide movement of Jesus followers, of radical Jesus followers, of the disciples of Jesus, is known as Christianity. But before any follower of Jesus was called a Christian, which was meant as an insult invented in Acts 13, they were actually known as the way prior to that. In fact, in Acts 9, Saul sought to eliminate and persecute the church. He asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners or have them executed. Later in Acts chapter 19, Saul, now Paul, entered the city of Ephesus and now a follower and radical follower of Jesus spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But in Acts 19.9, the Bible says, but some of the Ephesians became obstinate and they refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. And then, of course, in Acts 24, Paul confessed as he was explaining his former life how he used to persecute followers of the way to their death. 
arresting both men and women and throwing them into the prisons. Narrow is the way leading to life. Jesus is the way leading to life. The church is even called the way. And the Bible encourages us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, to quote, follow the example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The way of Jesus is love and sacrifice. Yeah, that sounds like Jesus. Jesus himself even expects that we will love him enough to follow him radically, even if following Jesus radically involves very high commitment. And it does. If you're going to follow Jesus with any amount of radicality, it's going to be a high, high commitment. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road, and a man came to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's not going to be easy. Then Jesus called out to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another fellow said to Jesus, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Oh, this is high commitment. Many who claim to want to follow Jesus are actually unwilling to give up their comfort or their family for the sake of the Lord. Following Jesus until it becomes uncomfortable and then flaking out is not discipleship. Jesus describes exactly this process of flaking out when things get tough in his parable of the seeds and of the sower. Jesus said, a man scattered some seed and some fell on the path and the birds of the air snatched it up and some fell on rocky soil and sprung up quickly because it, but because it had no root, it withered away just as quickly. And some fell among the thorns and when it came up, it was time to cut them down and they all went down and the thorns choked them out. Ah, some, however, fell on the good soil and it took root and it produced 30, 60, even 100 times the yield and then in Matthew 13, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone who hears the message about the kingdom of God and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution come because of the world, they quickly fall away. How sad. Without rooted commitment, trouble from the world prevents non-radical followers from being disciples. Some hear the word of God and they receive it with an emotionalism, a joy, not grounded in truth, but rather grounded in feelings. This means that they have no root or commitment, but emotion is fickle. 
You all know somebody who's gone to church and had a really cool experience. They went to church and the preacher was slick and the music was a show and everything was great and they felt really, really good because it was warm outside and it was cool inside and everything was just right. And it was awesome. And they were receiving the word of God with great joy until the next thing that brought greater joy took them away. Or until something in their life got tough and the trouble came. Or until somebody said, oh, you're a Christian? Christians are dumb. And the persecution came. And then, because they had no root based in truth, all they had was emotion and fickle emotion at that, they flaked out. They lasted only a short time. When trouble comes on account of Jesus, they withered away and chose not to follow Jesus radically. It was too hard, and so they stopped. How sad, because you know what? Jesus tells us trouble's coming. In fact, in John 16, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This promise, validated by the resurrection, is enough for me to be all in. This promise, validated by the resurrection, is enough for me to follow Jesus come what may. This promise, validated by the resurrection, is enough for me to be a radical follower of Jesus. Is it enough for you? Is it enough for you? A disciple is a radical follower of Jesus who sticks it out, come what may, and who is all in for Jesus. But part of what comes is the call to take up the cross. You do know that Jesus bids us come and die, right? This little phrase taken from the great Christian theologian and devotional writer Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his excellent little book, The Cost of Discipleship, written during the World War II time, says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You do know that Jesus called us to die, right? Jesus says this in Mark 10, verses 38 and 39. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's not the only time Jesus said something like this. In fact, in Luke 9, 23 and 24, he said to all of them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. This is the call to die. This is the call to die. You know that because taking up your cross is taking up your own instrument of execution. The cross is how people were murdered and executed in a really horrible way. In fact, the word that describes really horrible pain, excruciating, literally means out of the cross. Ex, like exit, excruciating, out of the crucifixion. The worst pain imaginable is described as excruciating. Jesus says, take up your cross daily, but this is something of a confusing phrase because if you take up your cross daily, that's actually only a one and done thing if Jesus is talking about your physical cross. 
Jesus only walked the Via Dolorosa one time because when he carried his cross to the place of the skull and they executed him, that was it. He died. His body was separated from his soul and he experienced death. And if you were to take up your cross physically, you could do that exactly once because then you would die. But Jesus tells us very clearly, take up your cross daily and follow me. So the cross that we're taking up is obviously not a physical cross. And the death we're dying is obviously not our physical death. The cross we're taking up and the death we're dying is something else. We have to die to self. We have to die to sin. We have to die to selfishness. So every single day, Jesus says, take up your cross and kill yourself. Kill your stupid, selfish desires. Kill the sinful part of you. Die to self and live for Christ. And so that's what we do. Every day, we crucify the part of us that wants to indulge the sinful nature and the fleshly aspect of our being, and we pledge once again to live radically for King Jesus. Every single day, we take up our cross daily and we crucify those bits of selfishness that might seek to weigh against the spiritual blessings we have in Christ and we say, no, I will put those sinful things aside and even though I want to do it, and oh, I do want to do it because I'm stuck. I'm stuck in my fleshly body, in my sinful nature, so there's an aspect of my salvation that hasn't happened yet. I'm not saved from the presence of sin, but I have been saved from the penalty of sin but I'm being saved from the power of sin. Sin is powerful. Sin pulls you, and there's some sin that pulls you. Maybe it's looking at illicit things. Maybe it's doing illicit things. Maybe it's violence. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's greed. I don't know what your sin is, but I do know this. It's got a pull on you. It's got a pull on you, and the way to eliminate its pull on you is to go ahead and just die. Die to self. So every single day you say, Jesus, I promised I'd be a radical follower of yours. It's not very radical for me to say I'm going to follow you and then just do what I want to. You know what a radical follower would do instead? What Jesus said to do. That's what a radical follower would do. And that's why Jesus has a very high expectation. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It is not follow me until the going gets tough and then get out of here. It's not follow me until persecution or trouble strikes. It's take up your cross daily and be willing to die for me. Okay, that's pretty exciting. That's pretty exciting. That's the cost of discipleship. And when we do this, when we take up our cross daily, do you know the exciting thing that results? Just like the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The f life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the hallmark of being a disciple, of being a radical follower of Jesus. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you through his word and through his spirit. And when Christ lives in you, you become radical. That's what a disciple is a radical follower of Jesus. And we will drill down very deeply on the process of transformation and growing in radicality in our uh, discipleship series. But today, right now, ask yourself this question. Am I a disciple? A radical follower of Jesus? A come what may, all in, radical follower of Jesus? If so, good. 
We've got plenty of work to do to get the world around us to become likewise. For our mission is to make disciples. And if you are a disciple, if you are a radical, come what may, all-in follower of Jesus, then we've got a job to do, and it is to make disciples. And so we've got to learn how to do this, and we've got to go out to the world around us. We have to serve, and we have to teach, and we have to preach, and we have to show the world that there's a better way. But if you're not quite there, if you're not quite radical, you like to follow Jesus, but it gets tough, and so you don't really want to do it all the time. If you're not quite there, you like the idea of following Jesus, but you can't follow Jesus come what may because some bad things may come. What if 2021 is worse than 2020? I, I can't handle that. I can't handle that. Okay, then if that's the case, are you ready? Are you ready? If that's how you are, if you self-reflect and you know that's how you are, are you ready today to stop following Jesus nominally and to start following Jesus radically? That's my question. Are you a radical follower of Jesus? And if not, are you ready to become one today? Oh, but, you know, the cost of discipleship is pretty high, and the troubles are pretty great, and selfishness is really intriguing, and so you might have to ask yourself these three questions. Is the cost of discipleship too high? Is it just too high for you? Do you look at your life and say, I'm not willing to let the dead bury their own. I have to be there for my family. I'm not willing to say goodbye to my family. I have to stick with them no matter what. Did you know that the cost of discipleship might be you lose a relationship even with a family member? Your children might not stay with you. Your parents might not accept you because of Jesus. That's the cost. Did you know that children can actually be an idol that keeps you away from God? This could happen. Is the cost of What if Jesus said, you got to give up your children, just like uh, Hannah was willing to give up Samuel? What if, what, if, what if that was the cost? Would you be willing to do it? Well, no. No, I can't give up my children. Maybe your children are an idol, and you need to train them up in the way of the Lord instead of living vicariously through them. Are the troubles of this world too great? Oh, the troubles of this world are great. There's lots of troubles. There's lots of troubles. There's fire, there's famine, there's injustice, there's cancer, there's sickness of many kinds. There's all kinds of troubles. Are they too great? When they come, does your emotional faith fall away? It's time to start building your life on the foundation of the truth. And Jesus is the way, the life, and the truth. Build your life on him. Do you just not want your selfishness to die? Oh, we're all selfish. And Jesus says, kill your selfishness every single day. But some of us just don't want to. Some of us just want to do what we want to do. And so the idea of following Jesus is great until he tells me something I don't want to do, and then I'm not going to follow him. I called you Lord, but you're not really Lord. I called you Master, but you're not really Master. I call you God, but you're not really God. You're just the annoying voice telling me to do stuff I don't want to do. And so I'm not really going to go do it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Christians like that out there, and let's not be one of them. Let's be radical. And so, how do we get radical this week? Objective time. Three of them. Three radical objectives. Number one, prayerfully investigate your desires. Pray to God about all your desires. Say, God, here are my desires. Reveal to me your desires, my desires. Here's all my desires to see if some of them are stronger than your commitment to Christ. Because they might be, and you might not even know it, your commitment to your children, oh, don't worry, Johnny, you will always win. You're a perfect little snowflake, and you get a trophy no matter what. Yeah, that's going to not turn out too great for you in 20 years. 
Maybe you love your children more than your commitment to Christ. Or maybe you love Starbucks more than your commitment to Christ. Maybe it's financial for you. Maybe, maybe it's your desire for wealth. You're like, you know what? I know I've got money and I could give some of it to the kingdom, but I could just get a bunch of stuff for me. I mean, how many people compulsively shop to feel better emotionally? Lots of us. Lots of us. We just had Christmas. How much more commercialism do we really need? Maybe our desire for our money and the stuff it gets us is stronger than our commitment to Christ. It's time to self-evaluate that through prayer. All right. And let God reveal it to you. See if one is stronger, and then you know what the obvious follow-up is, right? Make your commitment to Christ stronger than your desire. All right, objective number two. Perform a radicality cost-benefit analysis. This is just a fancy word for list all your troubles and weigh them against all your spiritual blessings. Here's what I would love for you literally to do this week. I would love for you literally to get out a sheet of paper and draw a line straight down it. And then I would love for you to put all your worldly blessings on one side and all your, or all your worldly troubles on one side and all your spiritual blessings on the other side. Do it on an Excel spreadsheet if you're a computer guy. I don't care, whatever. But I want you to write out or type out all your troubles and list every single one of them and like go deep. Oh, you're sick. Oh, you're overweight. Oh, you're too skinny. Oh, you're too old. Oh, your hair is gray. Oh, you don't have any hair. Oh, grandma just died last week. Oh, my wife left me this month. Oh, I lost my job. Oh, I'm not getting 2,000. I'm only getting 600. I don't care what your trouble is. I want you to list out every single conceivable worldly trouble you have, even if it takes 20 sheets of paper. And then I want you to write down your spiritual blessings. And I want you to weigh them. And I'm going to give you a little spoiler, a little hint put salvation at the top of the list, and when you do, that by itself outweighs whatever's on the other side. Oh, I think you already know that, but I want you to go through the process. I want you to think about how good you've got it spiritually, no matter how bad you've got it worldly. I don't care. Oh, worldly troubles, they come. Take heart, Christ has overcome the world. And because he's overcome the world, we too can overcome the world because it's no longer us who live, but Christ in us through his word and his spirit. And so I want you to do the work of listing out all the trouble and list out all your spiritual blessings, not just salvation, but break salvation down. I'm thankful for the spiritual blessing of justification and of sanctification and of future glorification. And I'm thankful for the second coming, even though it hasn't happened. And I'm thankful for the first coming. And I'm thankful that God is just holy and perfect and write down everything that's awesome spiritually. God lets me participate in abundant life now and weigh them out. And I tell you what, if the list of worldly troubles outweighs the spiritual blessing, then you're not radical and you're not really in it and you can just stay home on Sunday. If that's what you think, then you're confused and you need serious, serious help but we are here to help because we know the truth. And if the truth does not sound good for you, you're gonna hang your head and go. And I pray you don't, but the choice is yours. And last, I want you to ask God to reveal one area of sinful selfishness in your life that needs to be crucified, and then I want you to crucify it radically. Oh, and not the obvious ones. Like if you're uh, addicted to porn, not porn. Uh, if you're violent to your spouse, not domestic abuse. Uh, if you're greedy, not greed. Like something more subtle, something you don't really think about very much, 
something that doesn't weigh on you, I want you to ask God prayerfully to reveal one area of sinful selfishness that needs to be crucified, that you don't ever really take the time and bother to crucify. Because if you're, if you're a guy struggling with sexual immorality, you have tried to crucify that. If you're a guy struggling with violence, you've tried to crucify that. If you're somebody who struggles with compulsive online shopping to deal with the emotional hole in your life, you've probably tried to crucify that. We've all tried to crucify the big ones. Ah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. I'm asking you to ask God to reveal to you something that's a little more subtle, something that you might not think about all the time, something that you could wake up tomorrow and crucify. He calls you to do it daily. I know you can. Is the cost of discipleship too high? No. No, the benefit outweighs any cost. Are the troubles of this world too great? No. The spiritual blessings that we have in Christ are so much greater. Do you not want your selfishness to die? Part of you doesn't. Your sinful side wants the sin to stay alive, but when you have a life founded on the truth, you know you've got to crucify that sinful part every single day. And when you do that, you start to follow Jesus radically. Come what may, you're all in for Christ. So let us die so that we can really live for Jesus. If you are a radical follower or you are ready to become a radical follower, would you stand with me as we sing this last song? And after I pray and we start singing, if there's anyone in this room who is not a follower of Jesus and you need to be, oh, come down and talk to Chris and talk to me and we will get you baptized and we will take care of this. We will show you the truth. And if there's anybody in this room who's eh, a nominal Christian and you want prayer about getting radical, oh, come down. We'd love to talk to you about that too. We're never supposed to do this alone. We're supposed to do this together. And if you need an accountability partner to help you crucify it radically, find one. And if you can't find one, talk to us and we will help you find one or we will be one for you. This is a team effort. No individuals in Christianity for it's no longer any of us who live, but Christ who lives through all of us. Let us pray.